This year's elections provide us an opportunity to vote for the candidates we need to strengthen our communities across the state. Today, we want to introduce you to another candidate running for office. Dr. Lisa Reynolds is a pediatrician who is involved with Moms Demand Action and is running for office for the first time. Her priorities include common sense gun protection, health care for all, affordable housing, and urgent action on climate. Dr. Reynolds is running for House District 36. Thanks for joining us today, Lisa. So start. let's start out with uh, talking about who you are. What should our listeners know about you as a candidate running for office? Thank you. Um, well, I'm a pediatrician, I'm a mom, and I'm an activist. Uh, as you alluded to in the introduction, uh, I kind of cut my activist teeth with Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense. I joined after the shooting at Umpqua Community College, which left 10 people dead. And through that work, I spent a lot of time in Salem on my days off, when, including rescheduling patients, where, and I would help organize you know, hundreds of volunteers to talk to their legislators, to fill the hearing rooms and the chamber galleries. I testified in front of um, committees. And you know, through that work, I really uh, gained a lot of appreciation and respect for the legislative process. And it's what kind of got me thinking about perhaps making a run for office. But of course, more importantly, is my work as a as a pediatrician. I've been uh, in a group practice for 25 years, built a thriving practice. I've I've followed kids from, you know, birth, you know, through going off to college and and beyond. I've had a couple um, young parents come back to me with their own kids who I took care of, and uh, through that work, I've seen what works and what doesn't work for families. And I have felt for a while that I want to do more for families than I'm able to do in the exam room. And when we look at the fact that Oregon's budget is 27% is devoted to healthcare, and believe me, that, that percentage is gonna go much higher in our current crisis, which I'm sure we'll be talking about. You know, it struck me that we have very few medical experts in the legislature. We have the amazing Rachel Kruzak, a nurse practitioner in the Oregon House, and we have Dr. Elizabeth Steiner Hayward in the Senate two healthcare providers mm. out of 90 legislators. All that kind of came together, and I realized that I had the, the medical expertise and the activist background where I think I could be an amazing legislator in, in the legislature. Thank you. Mm. Now, as a pediatrician, of course, as you just said, you work on the front lines with families and have for decades. How will that experience show up in Salem? Well, as I mentioned, I think... You know, I really see what is and what is not working for families. I, I did the calculation as I was preparing for this run for office that I've probably had over 60,000 patient visits. I see people at, their, at, their, at the best time in their life and at some of the worst times in their life. And I see where Oregon is doing well for families and I see where we're falling behind. I'm particularly concerned about the achievement gap um, about, you know, which kids start school most ready, you know, most kindergarten ready. And as a pediatrician, I, uh, you know, we are experts in those first five years of life, the first 2,000 days. And I think what really is going to inform how I look at things in the legislature beyond this COVID, uh, you know, pandemic is, is really strengthening early childhood programs, um, increased early intervention, perhaps pre-K for all, which is something we're looking at in Multnomah County, mm -hmm. so that when that kindergarten kindergartner starts school, they are the most ready for school. And we know that translates into 
third grade reading scores being improved and, and high school graduation rates improving. And of course, that translates into um, a higher chance for a rewarding and successful you know, life work and career. Are there new policies that you'd like to propose to fill in some of those gaps, or is it more of a matter of expanding some of the great work that's already happening? Well, I do think, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we had half-day kindergarten in Oregon, Mm -hmm. and it took a large effort, and I'm really grateful that we now have full-day kindergarten in Oregon. I think the next step is to have universal pre-kindergarten in Oregon. And again, that's something that... um, Multnomah County Commissioner Jessica Vega-Peterson is proposing in Multnomah County, but I think that is absolutely something we need to implement statewide. So that's in particular. And then expanding early intervention. Uh, I definitely see children who have, you know, mild to moderate developmental delay, but they don't quite qualify for services through early intervention because we just don't have enough services. And I think those kids would really benefit. And then the the last thing I would definitely implement, the third thing would be uh, what's called trauma-informed care in terms of really thinking about how we interact with children with behavioral or mental health issues um, and and providing care for those kids early and often and support for the families. There's not much there, especially in the zero to five age group. Mm. And can you speak a little bit more to early intervention? If if our listeners aren't familiar with sort of the suite of resources that are that are uh, under the umbrella of early intervention, what what are some of those services? Thank you. You're right. I, I I live and breathe this stuff all the time. I forget not everyone knows it. Early intervention is administered by the county, um, and it provides developmental services and kind of a therapeutic preschool for, for young Oregonians, usually in the, in the, you know, one to three, three and a half year age range. And the way I access it as a pediatrician is when I see a child who has, um, that we have developmental concerns about, and we have, you know, scientific ways of doing this, which is awesome. We have questionnaires, we have tests we do in the office. This is something we're asking about and looking at it every single well child visit. Uh, we refer them to early intervention. What's really amazing is someone from early intervention, a, ther- a physical therapist or speech therapist or occupational therapist, will go out to that family's home and see that kid in their home environment, which is such a valuable way to, to really assess a child. Um, certainly better than what I can do in the exam room sometimes. And then they Um, assess whether that child is eligible for services. And again, the service is going to be speech therapy, occupational therapy, and physical therapy. Mm. And I believe if we had more more resources in that program, we could help more kids. You know, we could we could lower the cutoff line for when we provide services, so to speak. Yeah. Now on your list of priorities, common sense gun protection is is listed first. Is that your top priority? I would not say that is my top priority. I've been working really hard on this issue for years, and with Moms Demand Action, we've we've been very um, successful in passing a gun violence prevention bill every year in the legislature except for this year. Mm. I've been working for two years on requiring that guns be locked when that guns are locked when they're not in use. That has failed twice in the legislature. Uh, we are all set to do a ballot measure in November, that process has obviously become very, very complicated because the process for gathering signatures 
will be is, is impossible in this current yeah. setting, and I, I don't see it lifting in time to get the signatures to get that ballot measure um, certified. But um, it's definitely one of my priorities. But I would say more important to me is this early childhood issue, mm-hmm. um, as well as health care for all. And look, we have to talk about the fact that we are in, you know, at just the beginning of a pandemic that has completely shifted everyone's priorities right now. So, so needing to um, stem the loss of life, mm. <laughs> um, stem illness, prevent financial ruin for Oconians, that is now obviously my number one priority, and I have some thoughts on what we need to do there. Oh, please, share. I would love to hear them. You know, um, as I was thinking about this interview, I'm like, we are in the middle of a pandemic. I'm like, no, we're not in the middle. We are at the very beginning. I don't think uh, a lot of people realize how early we are in a very long-term pandemic right now. Um, I was really happy to see that the most recent data from, I have to look up the acronym, um, the Institute for Health metrics and evaluation, which came out yesterday, mm-hmm. shows that Oregon's peak with the current, you know, measures in place, you know, assuming, and I think it's probably fairly accurate that most people are complying with those measures, we are going to be able to accommodate, you know, the sickest Oregonians with our current, with our current medical system. So the fear in this pandemic is that we would see such a sharp spike in sick people who need hospitalization who need ICU beds and who need ventilators, that it would completely overwhelm our system, overwhelm our medical workers, overwhelm the number of beds we have, overwhelm the number of ventilators we have. Um, But it looks like what we're doing right now, uh, the number of patients that grow very ill will be accommodated by our current system, which is really exciting. Um, The question is though, when do you lift these these very severe stay-at-home measures? And the answer is not for a long time, because after this first wave, 97% of us will still be vulnerable to, to, to falling ill with coronavirus. So mm-hmm. we need a long-term plan for how we start reopening certain businesses, depending on we, we need extensive testing, we need medications that work, and plenty of them. We're seeing shortages in the medications and uh, we obviously need a vaccine. So we are at the beginning of a long haul. And I, you know, when I'm elected and I take office in January of 2021, I'm gonna be thinking a lot about uh, an Oregon Recovery Act, where we for sure extend healthcare to every single Oregonian. You know, I was thinking about the fact that we're like, we are gonna, we are gonna take care of every Oregonian with COVID no matter what, they will not have to pay for this. Well, let's think of a, a, a medical diagnosis that we think Oregonians should have to pay for if they don't have medical insurance. No Oregonian should go without health care. We know more than ever that everyone's health depends on everyone else's. So health care for every single Oregonian. Mm. Let's do it. Uh, we need extensive testing um, for coronavirus. Hopefully that will be fully in place by January, but we're a couple months into it and we're nowhere near ready to do that. We are nowhere. We have nowhere near the supplies to do that. We need, um, I mean, I doubt we'll have a vaccine by January, but when a vaccine becomes available, we need a uh, very aggressive and organized system of vaccinating every single Oregonian against coronavirus. 
And then we need to rebuild our public health system. We need to plan forward. Right now, we are just reacting to this virus, and it is a couple days ahead of us. We're starting to we're starting to catch up to it a little bit, but we need to make sure we have an arsenal of personal protective equipment, ventilators, and medications should something like this happen again. Do you see a path to passing health care for all Oregonians? Absolutely. I think I think the um, I think we're close. You know, I think Oregon right now covers 94 to 95% of, of all Oregonians. So we're really close to getting there. And I think the public will is there. And if, and if anything, this, this pandemic shows us how intertwined our health mm-hmm. is with each other. And so I think there is, is, is a definite appetite for passing health care for all Oregonians. Those last few percent are tough to get. You know, they are. There are some people who are resistant but we need to make this as clear and, and easy and friction-free as possible to make sure every Oregonian has health care. And furthermore, I mean, we really need to work on improved health for every single Oregonian. That's a whole different topic. Um, but that, is, that, that has been my, um, a driving force for me getting into this race. It's obviously been a little bit subsumed by this pandemic at hand. Mm-hmm. Now, have you encountered any COVID-19 patients at this point? Absolutely. I mean, we don't have testing, so I can't tell you. I sure. can't confirm that I've seen kids with coronavirus, but but all of us in my practice are certain we're seeing kids with coronavirus, especially, I would say, um, until we really, we've completely changed how we're providing health care in our practice, and we're not alone. This is what most practices have gone to. We are now uh, a very um, telehealth heavy model where we're talking to people through telehealth. Again, it's pretty neat to see people in their homes and see kids in a more natural environment. But when we were bringing in kids um, uh, up until about two weeks ago, we were definitely seeing coronavirus in our practice. Mm -hmm. So yes, I have seen coronavirus. And and what I saw in my practice, which are kids who um, weren't so sick where they had to go to the emergency room, is is what, you know, we're hearing out of China. These kids overall are doing pretty well. Um, they have a high fever, they're coughing, they have a little more of a sparkle in their eye than those kids with influenza. So um, so it has been um, made this easier as a pediatrician that overall the kids are doing well. It still, though, is imperative that we prevent the spread of this illness so that those who are vulnerable, you know, the older patients, the patients with underlying health conditions, and of course some fully healthy patients, to come to this disease and die. So, um, while I'm saying I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that the kids aren't getting as sick with this disease as they have with others. It's still imperative that we, you know, keep schools closed, continue to practice social distancing. Um, but yes, I, I guess long answer to that. Yes, I have seen. And I want to talk a little bit about testing because if you're not in the medical profession, it can feel a little confusing. And and there's so many sources of information now that that adds to the confusion. I think one um, one piece of information that people are tracking is the impact on young people. And there's sort of a a myth or a misunderstanding that young people aren't getting coronavirus. Um, you just said that that, that that you have potentially seen. Uh, patients who have coronavirus, how uh, without te- uh, how important is testing during this time to know exactly how many how many people in the country and the world have coronavirus? 
I cannot emphasize this enough. Testing is key. It is it is the why well, I would say it's probably the second most important thing. The first most important thing is making sure that we have personal protective equipment for everyone who is interacting with sick people. And at this point, we're thinking about for anyone who's acting interacting with anyone. But testing is so important in our failure to have testing in this country and yes, in this state has greatly contributed to the massive spread of this disease and the deaths that we're seeing every day. Um, we look at other countries where they have instituted testing much more widespread early on, South Korea, Singapore, and where they've isolated patients and their, you know, their curve of new cases is much flatter than ours. So the, the failure here on testing cannot be overstated, the importance that it, it's having on the loss of, of life and, and, and our current economic crisis due to that. Um, going forward, though, which is how I want to start thinking, mm -hmm. we need to have, you know, extensive rapid testing available, you know, literally for every Oregonian if we could. And then we, especially if we want to start reopening our economy and our businesses, we cannot do that until we know which Oregonian has the coronavirus and which does not. We need to isolate those who have it and those who don't can, can start re-entering society. For many folks, it feels confusing as to why the testing isn't happening. From your perspective, where you sit as a physician, can you explain why there aren't enough tests to, to test everyone to make sure that we know who has it and who doesn't? Again, this is a, a situation where the virus is weeks ahead of us. We saw this coming around the curve, you know, when we saw what was happening in China, and we should have started developing testing then. Um, our FDA appropriately, our Food and Drug Administration appropriately, does not just let any test willy-nilly be approved, um, but but we are working to get, it, it's, it's testing involves equipment, it involves reagent, it involves Q-tips, and they're not literally Q-tips, they are swabs, all of which are in short supply right now. Um, so it's like we're building the airplane while we're flying. And so we just, we got caught hand-handed on this and we just have not ramped up our laboratories and those, um, the places that make the actual chemicals and media that uh, are able to run tests. Hmm. So we, we just need to get up to speed. It's, it's, it's kind of procurement of um, media, it's procurement of Q-tips, and the thing that's been very frustrating and has been talked about a lot is we're, we're, you know, for all intents and purposes, we are in competition with other states for all these same materials, whereas I believe there should be more of a federal clearinghouse uh, for doing this in a more organized fashion. And I want to shift a little bit from, from COVID yeah. to, to, the, to the elected role in um in response and recovery when we get there. As a legislator, what sort of role could you imagine playing in the next steps in recovery from COVID-19? Thank you. Um, as a legislator, when I, when I get elected, I will certainly ask to be on the, the House Healthcare Committee. Um, I also would like to be on the Mental Health Subcommittee of that because I do believe we were in a mental health crisis before this pandemic, and I can only imagine how this is exacerbating people's mental, mental health issues right now. And I will do what I outlined earlier. I will be part of, you know, introducing, I'm calling it 
House Bill 1 for the 2021-2022 session, where we provide health care for every single Oregonian. We make sure we have an organized and safe way to return some of our businesses back to where they were functioning. I think we're going to see a massive change on how society does things because of coronavirus. I think we will see a lot more people working from home, and how do we facilitate that? That's an aside mostly. We need to have a plan for when a vaccine becomes available and how we roll that out in a concerted and rapid fashion. We need to rebuild our public health system and plan forward for future uh, public health crises like this one. And we need a clear plan to help Oregonians stay solvent, stay in their homes, um, uh, figure out a livelihood if the one they had is no longer viable. You know, I was thinking about the fact that we are massively expanding our shelter beds right now because of coronavirus. And I, shelter beds are definitely a band-aid and not a long-term solution to the houseless crisis. But we need to bring the same urgent action for a long-term solution to the houseless crisis that we're bringing, you know, in terms of a short-term solution in, in light of the, the COVID pandemic. But I just want to say I think it's very important that we have medical experts driving this legislation, driving Oregon's action. I don't think we need uh, – I mean, my main opponent is a career lobbyist, and I believe that I bring the expertise, the knowledge, the ability, the, the understanding of what really works on the ground. I mean, I've, I've, we've run vaccine clinics in my practice for thousands of kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, I, you know, I think that I can really contribute greatly to Oregon's recovery from the pandemic. Mm. How has your campaign shifted now that walking door to door, canvassing door to door, having events is no longer a possibility? Yeah, thank you. I love canvassing. I love going door to door. I'm someone who loves being outside, seeing the neighborhood. I had amazing stamina for that. And it's, and it's you know, it's a minor loss compared to other losses in this pandemic, but it's been a real disappointment to me that I haven't been able to do that. Um, I have an amazing group of volunteers who are almost as eager as I am for canvassing. So we had big groups going out on the weekends, and it was it became a social thing, gathering at coffee shops, and I really miss that personally. Uh, so we have moved to um, online uh, events. I've held three virtual town halls, and to be honest, it's mostly talking about coronavirus because mm-hmm. people have a lot of questions, and my my career is, is premised on distilling down medical and scientific facts. Uh, and explaining it to people in a way that they understand and, and giving them advice and consultation on, on, on what they need to be doing and what I recommend. So I've had several um, online uh, events, and, um, and I'm going to the phones. I'm, I'm calling future constituents. I'm mostly checking in on people, mm-hmm. and I'm having amazing conversations with folks. Uh, I mean, one tiny silver lining, I even hate to say that because I feel like it minimizes the horrible cloud that this pandemic is, is, is um, folks are home, they're eager to talk on the phone, and I'm, I'm really meeting a lot of neat people on the phone, and that's where I'm trying to, that's where I'm focusing my voter contact. Mm. 
Now, being a state legislator, you obviously have a, a broad array, a diverse array of constituents. Uh, this district is on the west side of the Willamette, Jennifer Williamson's former former district. One of the your platforms is around um, urgent action on climate change. As we know, this last two legislative sessions, Republicans walked out over cap and trade. What do you see as a path to get cap and trade passed in the state of Oregon? Thank you. That's a, that's a really good question, and um, I don't want to sound naive. I, obviously, it's very challenging. I think we, I do think we probably need to think about new ways of countervailing the ability of the minority to completely hold up an entire legislative session, which is what happened in 2020, including my the bill I've been working on, which would require that guns are locked when they're not in use, which would save lives the minute it would have gone, you know, gone into effect. Uh, so I think one thing we need to do is, um, I think it's a huge lift to change quorum requirements because it requires a change in the Constitution. But I know there have been some other things offered out there, like we we withhold pay when they're not working or we make it, you know, we have attendance requirements that you are in, you know, in the building for, you know, a certain percentage of the legislative session. Otherwise, you are not eligible to run for re-election. So I think there there need to be some mechanical solutions to this. Mm-hmm. Um, I also keep thinking we have more, we, we definitely have way more in common than we have differences, whether you're talking about the rural-urban divide or the Democratic-Republican divide. And, uh, um, you know, most bills pass with wide bipartisan support. So I think really working on where we can find common ground on this. It's frustrating right now to think about how we're going to find common ground on climate change, given what's happened the last two legislative sessions, but I think we need to keep working. I also think we need to educate Oregonians on what this bill truly does and to own the narrative of what it is we're trying to do as a state, not only for capping emissions and um, preventing global warming, but for job development for rural and and low-income Oregonians. Do you think that it is just getting the content out across the state that will help people come around? Do you think it's the way that that information is delivered that will help? I think both. I I think in the um, I think in the rural parts of the state, the Republicans and the kind of timber unity folks have owned the narrative on this, and I think we need to take it back. And by we, I mean those of us who think we need to do urgent action on climate change. And um, there needs to be probably some creative PR around this, maybe some creative social media, maybe more town halls in the in the district. Um, but I think we can work to find common ground. And I'm not not to say that that those before me haven't tried. I think they have. But I think we can find some creative solutions. And then those constituents can put pressure on their legislators of, of finding some way to address this issue as opposed to just blocking it and walking away. Mm. How will you keep constituents engaged when you're in office? What does that look like? Well, I certainly, you know, this is kind of an old trope. My door will be open to anyone. You know, I certainly hope to have um, frequent public events. I actually really enjoy it. I'm I think being a physician has, has has prepared me really well for this role. I mentioned how much I I enjoy 
um, canvassing. You know, my work is knocking on a door and opening it up and having to make a connection for who's behind that door. And in my practice, sometimes I know that patient and sometimes I don't. But how they leave that interaction, you know, is, 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 is a measure of my success or failure as a physician. And I feel the same way as a politician. Not that I'm going to give you the antibiotics you came in for, but I'm going to explain to you why I think this is a situation where antibiotics aren't needed. That's an overly simplistic thing. Mm -hmm. But I think I'm pretty good at making connections with people, even if we have different viewpoints on things. So I I hope to be engaged with voters one-on-one. I should say constituents one-on-one. I hope to have public events um, in a variety of places in my my district. Uh, I, I discovered during this campaign the amazing um, Maplewood Coffee and Tea House. I had an event there um, for my campaign a few weeks ago, shortly shortly before um, things started really going um, badly for the pandemic. So I just hope to be out there a lot. I mean, maybe I'll be walking doors or, or hanging out in parks um, when that becomes doable again. Um, boy, I feel so wistful for that. But, but I hope to be out in public quite a bit and be accessible to people. And I think... That's what keeps them engaged, feeling that their representative in Salem is listening to them and really cares about what they think. Mm. Lisa, how can listeners support you? Oh, thank you. Well, first of all, since I'm a healthcare worker and I'm, you know, I'll be leaving here shortly to go to the hospital to see newborns, to go to my practice to see uh, kids under two who need their vaccines, so we need to bring them into the office and then to do my telehealth this afternoon and bring in kids that I have to. Since I'm out there seeing patients, it's important you all stay home, okay, <laughs> so that we slow the spread of coronavirus to protect me and, more importantly, uh, to protect those who are really on the front lines in the intensive care units, like my friend Dr. Maxine Dexter. So that's probably the most important thing because I want to stay healthy. I want my own kids to stay healthy, and I absolutely need my patients to stay healthy. Okay. Um, in terms of my campaign, please get engaged, get involved, follow me on Facebook, uh, follow my YouTube site, follow my, my other social media platforms, Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to get involved in any other way, please just reach out to me through my website. Um, I will say, uh, as part of this, again, I mentioned that I'm, um, you know, my profession is dis- distill scientific information and policy information down to the level of the exam room, to the parent, to the toddler. Uh, I've started a blog post called Oregon Coronavirus Update, where every few days, and I'm a little bit behind right now because of work, every few days I, I spend hours pouring over data, pouring over the news stories, and trying to distill what this means for us as a state. Um, follow me on that. Give me suggestions of what you want to be hearing and learning about, because this is this to me is my role right now is is, is helping folks all over the state um, understand what we're up against and what we need to do going forward. Mm. Dr. Lisa, and, and just I would say, yeah. vote for me, please vote for me. I I really I got into this race in October November because I felt we needed healthcare experts in the legislature, not career lobbyists. And I and obviously I feel that stronger than ever. And, and, I, and I hope that you all agree, and, and please feel free to um, comment to me, join my campaign, join in virtual town halls. I've been doing them on Sunday evenings, uh, and I, I'd love to hear from all of you. Dr. Lisa Reynolds, running for House District 36. Thank you so much for joining us this morning.
Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity and have a great rest of your day. And, and uh, I won't make any April Fool's jokes. I heard, I, I read something that April Fool's Day is canceled. Yeah, so maybe today. A good, a good decision. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for all you're doing for our community. And please, please, please stay well. Thank you. You too. Again, that's Dr. Lisa Reynolds. She is running for House District 36. You can find out more about her campaign and her blog with coronavirus uh, resources at lisafororegon.com.